people don't expect you to have all the answers. People expect you to be able to figure out a way to get to the answers with your team. Once I connected the dots with that, um, everything became a lot easier for me. Hello and welcome to the pod. I'm your host, Andrew Kaplan, and we got an amazing guest today. I'm excited to be chatting with Ben Williams. Unless you've been living under a rock, you've probably been seeing Ben's name everywhere in the growth space right now. Ben is the former VP of product growth at Sneak. He is the founder of plgeek.com, which is his full-time gig now, where he runs an advisory practice for B2B SaaS companies looking to grow faster. And he's also part of the Reforge network, where he helps create curriculum behind the scenes. So in addition to just being a growth veteran and a startup veteran, I'm excited to chat with Ben for a couple of reasons. One, he's known to be a passionate leader and a strong leader. He's a family man and has talked openly about the challenges of balancing his personal life uh, with his work life and his work identity. And he's also spoken publicly just about some of the challenges and setbacks that he's encountered in his tech career. So I'm excited to chat with Ben about these and a couple other things that come up. We're going to focus our conversation really on three topics today. One is nonlinear growth paths, how Ben got to become eventually VP of product growth at Sneak and some of the uh, bumps along the way and, and detours, as he calls them. We talk about fear of failure and imposter syndrome and how, you're, how you can use those um, to motivate yourself and to actually use those to get better versus getting stuck when they pop up. And then also about growth leadership ways that you can become better at receiving feedback, at giving feedback, and overall at growing faster. So I love the conversation with Ben. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed chatting with him. This episode of the Delivering Value podcast is brought to you by Novatic. If you're listening to this and you have followed me online, it should be no surprise that Novatic is a sponsor. Talk about the interactive demo space all the time. As a former two-time head of growth, I learned pretty quickly that there's a huge percentage of signups that create an account, poke around for a couple minutes, and leave and never come back. If you survey these folks, they usually say, hey, I just wanted to see the product in action for a few minutes. I'm not ready to buy. I don't want to upload my stuff. I just wanted to see it. And so creating some version of your product that's ungated, that people can play with on your website, tends to be super helpful for that population of people. It increases the quality of your users. It weeds out all the clunkers, so from clouding up your data, and it starts the onboarding process way before someone even gets into the product. It's a huge part of the growth operating system, and if you're looking for help building this, so you don't have to take months and months doing it in-house like my engineers did, use Novatic. They create third-party tools that help you do exactly this. I send a lot of my advising clients their way, and they're a great product. For those who aren't familiar with your journey and your background, like, what's your growth origin story? How, how did you first get into this world? So I've been working in product for best part of 25 years. Um, and I think growth has been an acknowledged part of that responsibility for the last six or so, I want to say. Uh, when I say growth here, I'm, I'm really talking about the, the product side of, of growth. So kind of looking back, I think, I, you know, I started as a product manager, grew into a product leader. Then as a product leader, I started to take on some growth responsibility. Um, more recently, when I joined Sneak, I focused on exclusively on growth to start with, but then that naturally actually evolved the other way into earning, uh, owning kind of other parts of, of product also. So uh, it's kind of been a, I guess, a, a wave. And now, obviously, you're doing a lot of advising. I feel like your name is everywhere, part of the Reforge network, supporting all kinds of companies with the stuff that you've learned firsthand. So you kind of mentioned that there's a little bit of a wave. I, I guess I'm curious to know, like from, from the outside looking in, if I look at your LinkedIn profile, to me, it looks pretty sequential, right? So like you get into product, you start doing more product leadership, more product management. You start getting into, you know, as you mentioned at Sneak, you start getting into uh, kind of the growth side of product. You, you kind of grow out from there. From my perspective, it looks very linear, but you described it kind of as some ups and downs. I guess I'm wondering to know, like, what have been some of the bumps in that journey? How did it feel in the moment as some of that stuff happened? I think it has been fairly linear. Um, maybe, maybe one notable deviation along the path i left i left I, I ended up in ibm through a bunch of acquisitions um 
but still in, in product leadership, product strategy roles. Um, when I left IBM, um, I intended to, to join a, a company leading products for their technology division. It was a fast growing FinTech. Um, that move was a deviation from the industry I'd worked in my entire life. You know, I focused entirely on, um, Direct, uh, developer tooling until until that point. So it was kind of a big step to to say, well, I'm going to go outside of of, of that the, that domain. Um, but I think the probably the bigger deviation came unexpectedly after I'd started the role, which was the story is basically I, I shadowed the CTO for a couple of months and realized the way that they did software development at this company was was less mature than I'd anticipated. Let's just say. Um, and I ended up leading a DevOps transformation uh, across the entire company, uh, building out the internal developer tooling platform, uh, the, the developer experience function, and, and later taking on performance engineering and benchmarking uh, functions. It was ended up lead, leading, I think, probably eight over 80 engineers. Um, so going from this product role to a kind of an, en- an engineering hybrid leadership role. Uh, so it wasn't just so much bumpy as just kind of off the map from where I'd expected to be. And, and before I knew it kind of three years had gone by and I realized that I really needed to get back into products and, you know, I just, I just missed it. But I think even with that experience, it was in, incredibly valuable. Uh, and during that time, you know, I, I learned a great deal and, and undoubtedly matured as, as a leader. But apart from that, you know, I think, I think linear is probably a good way to to describe it. I think, some of that maybe is down to be making good intentional choices in the roles that that I've taken on. Um, even from from pretty early in my career, I never really approached interviews from the perspective of you know trying to prove my worth. It was it was always just as much for me about finding out whether this was a role that I really wanted. If it was with people that I wanted to work with, if it was at a company that I wanted to work for, whose values align with my own, you know, if it was in an environment that could help me grow. So I think, you know, some of the path that I've taken is is definitely attributable to that, but probably a bunch of luck in there as well. Um, you know, maybe just being in the right place at the right time. Well. I think that's being modest, might be a little bit of luck in there, but it sounds like you were being pretty intentional, right? So you had your own criteria that you were also evaluating these roles with, which is something that I think we're starting to see more of, but I feel like culturally, maybe it's just because I was junior, but I feel like culturally that was not as prevalent five, seven, 10 years ago. I'm wondering, like, when did that start for you? How did you realize that that was something that you should be doing that would help you? So at university is the short, the short answer because I I got a job as a developer whilst at university, but before I finished my degree, uh, I was actually approached by a couple of other companies who decided to offer me a bunch of money to to join them to do things other than development. And um, yeah, I I kind of looked at those opportunities and kind of weighed them up and figured that. You know, I, I just did some some pattern matching in my head and kind of figured that these were these were the opportunities that I think better satisfied my goals at, at the time. Um, and that kind of I think that process of being intentional and you know I think that was a little bit fortuitous that I that I was in that position where I could have those uh, kind of multiple opportunities in front of me, but. Ultimately, what it led to is is getting that perspective that I've got a choice in in uh, in my career rather than just kind of being at the uh, at the mercy of uh, of those trying to hire me. Ultimately, and now as a leader, so you're obviously on the other side of a lot of hiring now as someone who builds and leads larger teams. Um, one of the patterns that I used to see a lot when interviewing is if it's a 45 minute interviewer, the interviewer usually asks the first 43 minutes worth of questions. And I'm curious if you take a different approach given the background and experience that you just shared. I don't know how good I was at this earlier on, but probably as long as I can remember over the last 10 years or so, any interview that I've been in, 
I've never thought of it as as an interview. It's been a conversation, an opportunity for me to find out the answers that that I want to uh, that I want to get to. So, you know, I'll go into the interview very much with um, with a a set of questions that that I want answers to uh, about the person that I'm speaking with, about the company, about the team, uh, all of those things, um, and through the conversation, I'll. You know, I'll take my opportunity to to ask those questions, um, or just guide the conversation in a way that that those questions, those answers naturally kind of come to light. It feels just more, far more natural that way. Um, and it, it honestly, it, when you do it like that, it doesn't feel like an interview. It it just does feel like a conversation. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, and do you set context before then? Like, if I'm someone who's interviewing. And I see that I'm interviewing with you. I assume you're towards the later rounds of the interview. Does someone let me know in advance? Like, hey, when you chat with Ben, come with a whole bunch of questions. He's going to leave time. He wants it to be more of a conversation. Or is that something that you bring up in the moment to see how prepped are they? So I try to let them know in advance that, you know, I want the the conversation to be pretty organic. There are typically a bunch of things that I want to try and find out through the interview. And it depends, of course, what kind of role and, and level and my role in the hiring process. You know, if it's someone who's who's directly going to be reporting to me, or whether I'm on the panel in um, in in the role for someone outside of my team, um, the approaches are going to differ there, obviously. But again, the best the best conversations or, or the best interviews are the ones that that are very natural in, in, and organic in, in how they kind of manifest. And I think you learn, you have the opportunity to learn a lot more about the person you're speaking with um, when it's not such a, a rigid structure. Yeah, for sure. And I want to go back to something you just said a few minutes ago. A lot of the folks who I chat with who work in growth have a million of these, you called it a detour in their career where either by their own choosing or by someone else's choosing, they're on this path and then they take a little bit of a different direction for some period of time. So you described yours. You said, I took an engineering deviation and I'm curious to know just like a little bit more context around how that happened. Was that something that you sought out? Were you given an opportunity and you thought, hey, I'd be crazy not to do it? Can you just like elaborate a little bit more? So as I said, I joined to lead product for the technology division of this of this fintech Temenos. Um, amazing company, amazing people. But it felt like a step backwards in how they developed software when I was there. And my first couple of months actually were shadowing the CTO just to build as much context as I possibly could about the role that I'd been hired to do. Um, but it was through that kind of shadowing of the CTO that that it became really obvious that there was a huge opportunity for the company to modernize the way they um, thought about products, modernize the way they thought about engineering, um, modernize the idea to value process, if you like. And, uh, and so I just went to the, uh, the exec team and, you know, presented a, a short report that ultimately kind of highlighted some of my thinking around this. And uh, I proposed a DevOps transformation and they said, okay, well, here you go, go and do it. So that's kind of how that turned out. That's super cool. And so at that time, in retrospect, I guess, you described it as, hey, I took this deviation, it ended up being a good thing. But in the moment, did it feel like a good thing? And I'm asking this because I'm assuming that there's going to be people who are listening to this either because of the economy and some restructuring or other reasons might be taking deviations. And I'm wondering if it's the gift of time that's given you that perspective or if you knew it in the moment. I'm trying to think back. Um, I definitely didn't perceive it negatively. I think if you if you think about some of the things that that naturally drive people to growth careers. Um, I think it's pretty common that folks in growth are driven by, you know, impact and putting themselves in 
situations where they are learning. And I don't think I'm any different there. Those are two pretty important things for me. You know, I want to make a difference. I want to have an impact with, with what I do. Um, and I have a, a relentless curiosity and a passion for learning. And I've, you know, I've figured out over the years that mentally I'm in a much better place when I'm consistently learning new things. And growth is just one of those careers that allows me to satisfy both of those itches. And if I think back to that situation at, at Temenos, I think absolutely it's, um, that felt like a, a situation where, first of all, there was a, an opportunity to make substantial impact across the, across the business, literally transforming, uh, an entire organization with, you know, 3000, uh, engineers globally, um, in how they develop software. Uh, so the, the, the opportunity for impact was there and it was something that I was very interested in that whole DevOps space. You know, I'd, I'd worked in that space before on, on product side. Um, but it was also at the same time, something that felt like a huge learning opportunity for me, um, to really dig into it. And so, yeah, I embraced it. And, you know, I was curious to know some of the other characteristics that might come to mind that as you reflect on your career and the progress that you've made, you attribute some of your success to. You mentioned a few of them. You talked about learning and curiosity and impact. I'm wondering if other words come to mind as you reflect on the traits that you think have contributed to your success. I guess there's a, maybe a couple of things that, that are worth mentioning. Um, the first is maybe motivation. And, you know, for me, that, that comes, my motivation comes from really caring about what I'm doing. You know, there's been times when, you know, I've had particular responsibilities that I just haven't been invested in. And my motivation has, has definitely been lower during those moments. So, you know, really caring about what you're doing, the why is important, like why why you're doing it and the the people you're doing it with and you know if you have all those things then i find it hard not to be motivated um and maybe the the other thing is something that historically i think has been there for most of my career it's somewhat of a double-edged sword um that's a a fear of failure and you know don't don't get me wrong i'm not you know, talking about some sort of debilitating fear, right? But but for me, it, it manifests itself in wanting to be well prepared for any situation. You know, it drives me to be incredibly proactive. Um, but absolutely, it's a, a double-edged sword because at points in my life, it's, it's definitely brought to the surface um, a bunch of negative feelings, you know, self-doubt, imposter syndrome, all that stuff. I find that that one is a constant amongst people who work in tech and especially in growth roles. Um, I want to go a little bit deeper on that in a second. But so you basically mentioned sort of two themes. One would be motivation slash passion. Uh, in my notes, I wrote down finding alignment with your why, you know, whether that's a certain area that you're interested in or something that maybe aligns with your personal values and I couldn't help but reflect on what you were talking about a few minutes ago when you were talking about your interview process, which is basically you determining, is this one of these environments where I am going to be incredibly passionate and motivated to, to sink my teeth into? And then the other side, on the fear failure side, really using that to motivate your preparation and your proactivity, are these skills that people can learn? Like if there's someone listening to this who feels like, hey, I've, I've got fear, fear of failure, but... I don't do anything with it. It stops me. Like, is there some, some way that they can approach things differently in your experience? It, it's always just felt na a natural consequence for me. Like that, that fear has been, I guess, ever present. And my reaction as long as, as I can remember has been to be proactive in, in dealing with that. Um, if I was to think about how, someone who, who perhaps feels a little more paralyzed by by those feelings then perhaps the the right way to think about this and this isn't experientially this is just kind of me thinking about how i might advise someone on 
on dealing with these kind of situations, it would be to, I think, take, take a step back, try and have an objective perspective of the situation. If you're able to talk to some other folks, because often, you know, we, we um, make things significantly bigger in our own heads than, than they actually are. Um, so try and get some perspective on your own, get some perspective of, of others. Um, and when you do that, when you kind of objectify that, that situation, um, when you get that perspective, then I think it's much easier to then kind of think about, okay, well, how do I want to deal with this situation? Um, and in doing so, then, you know, you're in a much better position to, to understand how to approach that situation going forward. Do you think fear of failure is just normal? Like, is that just normal to feel uncomfortable at time to time when you work in any career, but especially in tech, which just moves fast and things are always changing? Yeah, maybe, maybe if not, if you're a narcissist, but otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, yeah, I am. Um, I think there's, there is definitely some level of norm normality there. Um, I guess it's just the degree to which the degree to which it affects you and the degree to which that's an intrinsic motivator for you. As a coach, I talk to folks every week who talk to me about this. Comes out, they use different words to describe it, but it's that. It's that fear of failure. And to your point, it's what makes them great. And for some of them, it's what derails them. And if everybody has it, from my perspective, I, I think it's somewhat normal. I think it's weird if folks don't have it. And I guess the thing that stands out to me is what I've learned is that there are some people like yourself who are able to manage it and that there's others who it becomes a blocker. Yeah. What do you, do, do you see uh, anything there that separates those folks? Well, I have a few theories. I haven't cracked the nut. If I could, I'm sure I'd be a therapist and not a coach. You know what I mean? Like that's, that applies to many areas of life. Um, and you touched on a few of them where the story that folks tell in their head is, is maybe bigger than what happens in reality. And they, uh, maybe over index on, on some details that aren't, aren't necessarily what's happening in the real life. But I think more so there are some people who are able to see past it and they have a grander vision of where their life is meant to go and where their career is headed. And so although things happen. They just view them as bumps in the road because they have that perspective. And I guess I heard you talk about that perspective in different ways. Actually, you just talked about it a second ago where you said, I try to zoom out and see the grander picture. I'm wondering as I share that, like, does that resonate with you or are there different things that maybe you picture, whether consciously or subconsciously to help you navigate? I think having, having a vision and, and strategy is with, with a time horizon kind of beyond the short and midterm is is probably a an important part of it obviously that strategy is going to need to evolve as as you learn things but but i think that probably helps you maintain you know a broadly correct trajectory despite the kind of short-term blips that 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 you might see along the way yeah that makes sense no it makes a ton of sense um has this ever gone away from you, for you personally? So now you're several years into your career. From the outside looking in, incredibly successful. Your career has uh, evolved into the next chapter. Now you're sort of a free agent. You're building plggeek.com. You're working with the Reforge team. You're advising all these different SaaS companies. Has this ever gone away for you? No, no I'm, I'm trying to think if, if fear of failure is the same thing as imposter syndrome. Um, they're very closely related for me, at least anyway. And I've definitely identified with having imposter syndrome, you know, throughout, throughout my career. Like I can't, I honestly can't remember a time when I haven't felt some degree of, uh, of imposter syndrome, you know, any time that I've made a meaningful role change, for example, you know, going from a from a PM to a manager of PMs, or taking on an exec role, um, also changing roles. Like when I joined Sneak to take on a product leadership role that was more focused on growth than I had been in previous roles, um, and even yeah, um, 
starting PL Geek and moving into this full-time advisory capacity. So yeah, it's definitely something that that is is there to this day. Um, but I think over the years, and now certainly I'm I'm far better at kind of recognizing it and you know even using it to uh, to my advantage. And can you elaborate a little bit more on that last part? So if someone's listening to this, maybe they've just started a new gig. They've started a new, a new role, maybe it's similar to yours, uh, leading product growth at a new organization. They're feeling uneasy. Maybe they'll use different words to describe it, but they feel uncomfortable. What would your advice be to someone who's in that position? There's two things. One, I think, is a mindset and perspective, and the other is a little bit practical maybe so with the with the mindset with the perspective thing um what i do is i remind myself that if i'm feeling uncomfortable then it's it's because i'm in a situation that is perhaps unfamiliar to me and therefore it becomes an incredible growth opportunity i remind myself that i'm happiest when i'm learning when i'm developing when i'm growing so that helps me just kind of reframe the situation and makes those feelings, you know, just a little bit, um, little bit less intense um, and, and just accept them for, for what they are. And on the, the practical side of things, um, I think particularly, you know, particularly for, for starting a new role, I'm a, you know, I'm a big advocate for proactive planning, acknowledging that you know, your plans will inevitably change and building in that change into your plans. So, you know, before I, I joined Sneak, I created that 30, 60, 90. You were the huge inspiration for that. You know, your kind of initial template was what I took and, and spun off and kind of elaborated on for, uh, for my own use at, at Sneak. And that was a hugely beneficial tool for me in helping me kind of stay focused on everything that I needed to do and being able to park a lot of other stuff that was happening. And it helped me, I think, absolutely um, get past some of those feelings of, you know, imposter syndrome because like, well, look, I know how to do this. You know, these are all tools that I've, I've got in my, uh, in my tool belt. These are, I've been doing this for a, for a long time. I'm prepared. And being able to say that as opposed to kind of staring at a blank canvas when you start a job and thinking, well, what should I do? You know, I think night and day, right? I love that. And for anyone listening, the thing that you, what you shared a bunch of stuff that just resonated with me, but one of the tactical things that I'll do with folks is to create some set of affirmations. They can repeat to themselves when they are feeling I don't want to call it a flare up, but when they're feeling some of these feelings where they might feel less than worthy of their success or their role or their title or their comp or whatever it might be. So you shared a few of those when you started this new role. I know what I'm doing. I know how to do it. And you repeat some flavor of that back to yourself. So I think that's an incredible tool uh, tactically for anyone listening to this. But you shared two other things I thought were really interesting. You talked about relating your imposter syndrome back to your values of learning, of growth, of curiosity. And when those things are happening, it sometimes feels uncomfortable in the moment. Like growing feels uncomfortable, right? If you think about an analogy, if you go to the gym and you start, you know, improving your fitness, like it's literally painful. And we forget that that's what it actually feels like to grow. And you have a system for it in that your values are this growth. And so by definition, when you feel this discomfort, it's a confirmation that you're living your values, which is a great way to approach it. Yeah, you, you probably said it a lot better than I did. Well, I'm just listening. I'm just repeating back what I heard. And then the other thing, which is great. So a lot of folks who I chat with, they start a new role or they're in an existing role or maybe they get a promotion or whatever. And a lot of times they're waiting. They're sort of waiting for something bad to happen, almost bracing for it, expecting it, manifesting it in a way. And what I heard you say is, hey, I don't want to wait. I just, I know what to do. I'm going to show up. I'm going to be proactive. I'm going to put together my plan. I'll let folks know the plan. If I need to change it, I will. And so it's that approach, right? It's not waiting. 
It's being really proactive. It's being intentional. It's driving, not being a passenger is what I heard you say. Yep, exactly. Yep. On the flip side, as a leader, how have you been on the other side of this where you've seen someone who's joined your team that you can tell is is maybe struggling with their own feelings of fear of failure or maybe imposter syndrome? And how have you approached that as a team leader? So I don't know if I'd say that I've seen someone join my team where they've opened up to me at least about those problems. But I've had people join my team that where I anticipated, I guess, that that could be something that might get in their way. Um, and I'll give you an example. So um, while at Sneak, um, one of the PMs that uh, that was in my team, uh, in the growth team, uh, was an engineer originally. So an engineer in one of the, the growth teams and moved into a product role, you know, she was showing all of the the sensibilities that I would expect, all of the the characteristics, all of the behaviors that you know a, a strong growth PM shows while she was in an engineering role. You know, she was leading impact and learnings ceremonies. She was being extremely curious. She was constantly in data. She was, you know, um, talking from the perspective of, of hypotheses and all of the all of the signals were there that suggested you know she'd make a, a great pm and we had a chat about that and and it resulted in in her moving into a into a product role making that leap from an engineer to a product manager yes you can have all of the the kind of characteristics and innate qualities that that make it easier but you've still got a ton to learn right about about how to work in a product role. And so I was aware of that and we didn't have a specific conversation about it, but she expressed that she was, you know, extremely keen to start making an impact soon. And so, um, I think the the key for me there was just trying to build confidence. Uh, and so being a little bit closer than, than I otherwise would have been uh, to to help along the way and reinforce the the kind of positive uh, behavior and impact that I was seeing. Um, one of my product coaches that I'd had um, for for several years back, uh, Rich Mironov, amazing product coach. Um, he uh, he wrote a, a couple of books on product management, but one of them I had and. I just wrote a message to to this PM in the in this book, and I said, you know, this was a book that when I got started in product, it, it helped me um, a great deal. Rich is one of the kind of found um, founding fathers of, of product methodology, and and you know, this is an extremely valuable resource, um, and I know that you're going to do great in this role, and so I kind of just wrote that sent. To, sent that book off to her and you know just things like that in terms of building folks confidence i think can go a long way in terms of getting them past some of those potential feelings yeah so you identified that there was i'm going to use my terms not yours here but your spidey senses tingled a little bit you saw something and you followed your instincts and then you tried to reinforce all the amazing things about this person in a way that would help them to grow and help them to be successful is kind of what I heard you say. Yep. Yep. Exactly. You know, you wrote something about this, about, uh, although this is positive feedback, you wrote something about feedback that stood out to me on LinkedIn. I'm going to read it back to you. Mm -hmm. So you wrote, there have definitely been times, especially earlier in my manager and leadership experience where I shied away from giving feedback in real time. And sometimes I even let it go. Or you simply did not apply radical candor where I lapsed on maintaining a drumbeat of conversation around goals. And when I was less regular with some of my 360 feedback, because they're time consuming when they're done right, they're invaluable. And so I'm curious for other folks, maybe they're in their first leadership role or they're still early in their leadership journey. 
I feel like everybody in those types of positions struggle to give that type of honest and constructive feedback. In the story you just shared, it was positive, but the flip side of that is more constructive. How did you think about approaching those types of conversations mentally? So first of all, look, I, I really, I really used to hate having to give feedback. Um, Everybody does. I don't think there's anybody who's in a leadership role, especially a new leader who likes giving that, right? It's uncomfortable. Usually you're more nervous than the person because you know it's coming. They don't know it's coming yet. So that resonates with me. I'm sure it'll resonate with a lot of folks listening. Yeah, I used to have a lot of anxiety around it. Um, I'm talking about kind of negative feedback there. Actually, I'll, yeah, negative. There's a, I have a problem with that phrase, but um, I don't think, you know, I don't think many people, like you say, have too much of an issue giving praise. Um, but but I used to feel like deeply uncomfortable giving negative feedback, like like physically uncomfortable. Like I say, there's you know there's probably a a problem with the name we give it. You know, great feedback is about aiming to create improved outcomes. Um, so I'm not sure that that term of negative feedback helps much when you look at things through that lens. If, if anything, it probably heightens the anxiety that people feel about giving feedback. Um, but I learned that, I think first of all, you just need to really care. And again, I'm not sure if it was that same post that, that you referred to, but I wrote something about, about uh, 360 reviews and, and giving feedback. And, and I talked about caring and the importance of it. And you just, you know, you just have to care about the people in your team and, and others around you in order for, for any feedback you give to be authentic, for it to be meaningful. And if you don't care enough that you want to genuinely provide direct and actionable feedback, um, then, you know, you you probably shouldn't be managing people. You're probably in the wrong role, right? So you've got to ask yourself that question. But if folks are, are struggling with giving feedback, then it's more likely because they do care, right? Um, if, you know, if you don't care, you're probably not going to be um, too concerned about giving that, that feedback. Um, so you do care, but you just don't know how to go about it. So... The advice I think probably most important there is, is firstly, learn how to receive feedback well. So ask for feedback and be good at hearing it. And then learn how to deliver feedback well, you know, being clear with it, being concise, being direct, being authentic, being empathetic. And lastly, be consistent, you know, get, get the reps in. Like, like most things, it's, you know, it's something that you need to do lots of for it to become easier and it does it absolutely does become easier but you need to do it a lot you know if anyone's struggling here though honestly i'd probably just recommend reading radical candor by kim scott because that's probably the book that changed the most about how i approached this whole area and i think in the book the reason why radical candor works is because it starts with caring deeply which is what I heard you say as well. Yeah, what do they, uh, she uses what, care, care personally. I, I think. Oh, that's what it is. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So the first thing that you said really resonated with me where you said, first, before you can give great feedback, you have to improve the way that you receive feedback. And I feel like this is a pattern that I see with folks who I chat with. Either they get no feedback at all. And so then when they do get feedback, it feels incredibly heavy and they have a hard time shaking the weight of that. Or they receive feedback, but they are so um, defensive about it that they're not able to take action. How can someone improve the way that they receive feedback? A good question. I think, to me, it comes down to trust. Um, you know, I've, I've definitely had feedback um, during performance reviews, just outside of performance reviews that, you know, felt uncomfortable. I made, you know, I, I have admittedly made a lot of mistakes over the, over the years, but those are the things that, that I think have, have taught me the most. Um, you know, I, I recently did a LinkedIn post where I cataloged a bunch of mistakes and I, I looked back and thought, wow, yeah, that's, that's a lot of kind of pretty significant mistakes in, in, in many cases. But um, one example was around me 
um, not doing a good enough job in empowering my uh, directors of product, who were my direct reports at the time, with as much context as I should have been. You know, I was kind of keeping a lot to myself about what was happening in the exec team and so on. And I wasn't involving them anywhere near as deeply as I should have been in, in decisions, uh, wasn't involving them in contributing to the product strategy and so on. And that was ultimately leading to, you know, a lot of frustration. And I was new in, in the head of product role at the time. And, you know, I felt that I, I felt like I had to have all the answers. You know, I felt that I would be judged negatively if, if I didn't, I thought that you know, it needed to be the strategy that I created, not the strategy that we created. And when I, you know, when, when I heard this feedback, you know, it, 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 immediately in the moment, I felt absolutely terrible. You know, I was, I was gutted. Um, I was embarrassed, you know, at, at both the situation and the fact that it was kind of a blind spot for me as well. Um, Everything that I was doing in my role was, you know, it was coming from a place of good intent, which I think maybe made it harder as I was kind of sat there asking myself, like, how I could not see this, how I could get it so wrong. Right. It's more painful because you care. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So when the feedback came, you know, I was, I was fortunate enough that I had a high level of trust with people who were giving me the feedback. It enabled me to get to a level of acceptance faster than maybe I otherwise would have done. Um, and I stepped back and I tried to think it through and, and revisit various situations that we talked about and think through different ways in which this behavior that had been, that we talked about kind of past situations where, where that, where that kind of happened and uh, I tried to think through those situations and, and it became, you know, more obvious that, you know, this was something that was, that was genuine. It was a real concern. And, um, and at that point, then it kind of, it was Im immediate in my head, like a switch that was saying, well, you know, this feedback is, is a blessing, right? It's, it's a, an opportunity to course correct. Um, it's an opportunity for, for growth. Um, and ultimately that wasn't the product leader that I aspired to be. Um, so it enabled me to be pretty proactive in, in addressing the situation. So, you know, I think when it comes to listening to, to feedback, I think the, the most important thing is, is again, like something we talked about earlier, it's, it's getting perspective. It's not evaluating things in the immediate emotional state. And it's putting yourself in a position where you can step back, where you can be objective. Um, and I think probably one of the most important things is, is not to discourage feedback, you know, how you initially react to feedback is going to dictate the openness and the willingness that others have to give you feedback in the future so if you are kind of gracious in in accepting the feedback and then take a step back and, and think about it and, and evaluate it you know whether or not you agree with it or not um the last thing you want to do is discourage feedback coming to you because you can learn so much uh, from that feedback and you Again, they're, they're just opportunities for growth. So you want as much feedback as you can. Right. And we talked about it, right? That growth is uncomfortable sometimes. And that's what it feels like when you're growing. Sometimes it's, it can be really painful depending on how big the growth lesson is. What's interesting is like the common thread to a lot of your, to, to your ability to work through some of these challenges that, again, might stop other folks, right? There might be folks who get that kind of feedback who think, hey, this job's not for me. Maybe I should just leave the tech world and go work as a barista because I just can't, I can't hack it, right? They get that kind of feedback. It might actually stop them. But what really stands out to me is that a lot of your success and your ability to work through some of this adversity comes back to your values. You talked about valuing a place 
that you're passionate about, where you're motivated to work that aligns with your values. And because of that, you take your time during the interview process, which I would suspect allows you to find places where you're highly motivated and that you're working with people who you trust. You mentioned that as being something that was really important to your success. And then on the flip side, you also really value learning. And so you're able to take these moments. I'm sure there's been many others in your career, like the one that you just shared, and try to put them in the category mentally of learnings and use that as, um, as motivation to continue on and to get better. Is that, is that right? That's just kind of the threads that I heard you talk about throughout our combo today. Yeah, I think, I think it's absolutely right. Um, and I, w- I won't claim to always be intentional about that. But, you know, when you, when you have values that you do feel strongly about, it's hard not to, I guess, base how you, how you think around those values, right? I mean, that's, that's fundamentally what they are. Um, so yeah, I think that's a valid observation and yeah. And I'm curious about one more thing as we start to, to get to the tail end of our combo here. You said as part of that feedback, I thought going into it that I had to have all the answers, that I was being hired as, I forget what your title is, VP or head of, and that as the person with this title, I should know it all. And then you said my thinking has evolved since then. I bet that there's a lot of folks who are listening to this that also feel that pressure. What would be your advice to someone who's maybe former you and is feeling some of those feelings and maybe making some of the same mistakes that you made? Probably the biggest thing is that people don't expect you to have all the answers. People expect you to be able to figure out a way to get to the answers with your team. Once I connected the dots with that, um, everything became a lot easier for me. So again, you're only going to create hardship for yourself. And I say this through, through real experience. If you persist down that route of, you know, um, stubbornness, um, defensiveness, lack of humility, as soon as you kind of open, open the gates, so to speak, and you, you just let go, then I found things became significantly easier. And it's honestly just a lot more fun to be able to have a problem to solve and be able to go off and solve it with, again, with, with the folks around you, with the folks you trust, with the folks in your team. That to me is where kind of a lot of the joy of, of work comes from in particularly in growth, you know, there's, there's problems to, to solve. Um, and you've got to go and figure out how to do it. Um, and it doesn't serve you well to be in a position where you feel you've, you've got to know the answers, um, right off the bat. How did you get there? Like, how did you figure out that thing? Because I think a lot of folks never realize that thing and they put this insane pressure on themselves or they make shit up and they hope for the best and then they get found out and then they get this feedback and then it doesn't feel good. How did you figure this out? Someone pointed out for you or did you just get to this conclusion on your own? I think that, you know, the, the, the situation that I recounted, um, just previous, I think that was part of it, but I mean, you know, I'm not sure there was other than the, there was that situation, a couple of others just in, in speaking through folks, um, working with a coach was a big thing for me. Um, again, big shout out to Rich Miranov as, you know, absolutely amazing products, leadership coach. Um, definitely gave some, some different perspectives that, that helped me evolve as a, as a product leader and as a person. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm not, not really sure how to answer that. There's nothing that immediately, well, that was the moment when, uh, yeah, yeah. I just was curious if there was a moment like that, or if someone pulled you aside, uh, I don't know if you've had those moments in your career where it's like, why didn't someone tell me that? X number of years ago, man, I could have been thriving all this time. Instead, I had to go through all the 
the challenge to get to this point. Uh, yeah, but but thing is about going through all those challenges. Like again, when I look back at that list of big mistakes that I'd kind of compiled, I don't think I'd change them. You know, maybe in the moment, you know, <laughs> I, I thought they were so catastrophic that in the moment, if I'd had the opportunity to rewind a couple of months and and erase them, then probably I would have taken it. But looking back now, they are the experiences that has shaped who I am today and where I am today. And, you know, that's, yeah, I, I wouldn't change. I wouldn't change it for the world. I now. think that's an awesome takeaway for anybody listening to this who's maybe going through one of those times or has just gone through one of those times and, and feeling some of that self-doubt or feeling like, you know, hey, I've, I've been scared of failing and now all of a sudden I'm failing and, and oh no, it's me type of thing. Talk to folks who feel some flavor of that often. It's normal. It's part of the journey that folks, even who are from the outside looking in incredibly successful, all have these moments where we misstep or we make a mistake and that it's actually what makes us great. So for anyone who's going through that, that's a great takeaway. You're on the right path. Keep going. And these will be times that you reflect back on as being formative. So Ben, I just want to say thank you for coming on, man. You shared a ton of knowledge and background and experience. Uh, for folks who want to learn more about you or what you're up to or, or want to connect, where should we send them? Uh, so a couple of places. LinkedIn is where I'm probably most active. So uh, if you could share my LinkedIn profile link, that would be great. It's at Semantic Ben. And uh, my, my website is plgeek.com. Awesome. Thank you for coming on, my friend. Oh, thank you for having me. It's always, always fun spending time with you, Andrew, and uh, look forward to the next time. Thank you for listening to the pod. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. If you did, I have an ask. The biggest gift that you could give me as a small business owner and as a content creator would be a review. You know the game. You can go on to Apple Podcasts. You can go on Spotify. Leave a review. That would help me service this content to other folks who are like you. Obviously, you should subscribe to the content if you really dug it. And if there's feedback that you have for me, folks you think I should chat with, stuff that you wish I would gloss over faster, whatever it is, I'm all ears. I work in growth. You're not going to hurt my feelings. I, I try to collect feedback and iterate quickly. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn at Andrew Kaplan or on Twitter at at A Kaplan. Otherwise... Hope you enjoyed the episode and I'll see you next show.